Hello, and welcome to another episode of Pat and John on Their Best Behavior. I'm John. And I'm Pat. And this is the podcast in which two college friends bond over and berate one another over the films and music that they love, from Paddington to pop punk to Paul Thomas Anderson. I think I fucked that up minorly, but no, that's you're okay. okay. You're okay. This Just is this going. is a year in keep which going. we're okay with yeah, with, with yeah. minor mistakes. Um exciting stuff on the podcast today. There's a world in which I could make this clear that it's like a some kind of first, but at the very least I know this is special because we have a returning guest and I think this is like the quickest this must be the quickest turnaround in terms of a guest coming back in on in history, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and yeah. Um and it's extra special because a lot of the people that we tend to have on twice or at the very least, like r- relatively close to one another, they're usually um, old old friends of ours, yeah. people that we knew before we started potting. Um, and there's a reason for that. And that's because more often than not, I'm very insecure about getting new friends back onto the pod really quickly. Wait, no, just and stop the sentence. On... Stop it <laughs> yeah, after insecure. Right. Yeah, okay. So insecure. <laughs> insecure writ large but also i'm insecure about having new friends on the pod so close to one and like their appearances because then i i'm worried that they're going to catch on to just how annoying and insufferable we are but i'm choosing in this moment to just it this is a situation in which the the benefit outweighs the cost and i'll say why that is um very shortly but let's just uh say hello to our guest uh you will have heard um his episode or you will know this person from um uh, his episode in which we talked about Tyler the Creator, the music of Tyler the Creator, and you will have just heard this person on our special guest call-in, um, in which he talked about uh, his favorite TV shows and albums of 2021. Um, he's a poet and a music journalist, music critic. Maybe we'll get we'll get we'll figure out what his exact title is and in his, a second. It, well, his real claim to fame is the fact that he thinks that Cobra Kai. Oh, is right. better yeah. than succession. succession. Yeah, author of the the take that just put put Twitter in a in a tizzy. Um, Matt Mitchell. Hi, Matt. Welcome back to the podcast. Hello, hello. Glad to be back. Um, standing firm on my Cobra Kai takes. <laughs> a week later. Well, there's no take backs. So yeah, no. And if and if you're still with it with for a week later, like a week later, then it's it's canon. It's canon in terms <laughs> of it, it. You know, it being. Uh, the hill that you're going to die on. Well, yeah, I. Uh, I mean, anything that comes out on the last day of the year, it's hard to gauge if it's the best of 2021 or the best of 2022. Mm, right. And so, depending on how the rest of television goes, right in 2022, I might just have to move it over a year. Yeah, Pat got in trouble with that because he cited um, "Whole Lot of Red," the Playboy oh, Cardi record, as as his um, favorite album of 2020. But it did come out in, in 2020. It came out Christmas. I listened to it 500 times between Christmas and when we recorded. <laughs> right. And I was like, it's a 2020 <laughs> album. And then it was on everyone's list this year. Look, we're um, not going to be penalized for for waiting until the actual new year to do these things, you know? We're not going to be penalized. <laughs> you can't rush. It's you can't penalized. Rush no, I mean, well... <laughs> I'm an I'm an Anglo uh, an Anglophile so uh, I you know, see I see. Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, so we'll we'll get into talk, talking about exactly why Matt is on the podcast really shortly. But this is also really special because it's not every week that we have, you know, because this is a podcast about many things. It's about music. It's about um, it's about film. It's about friendship. It's about cryptocurrency, cancel culture, you know, all the hits. But it's also a podcast about football. Um, and it's it's not every week that we have someone on who actually is interested in that and doesn't find our talk about it to be totally insufferable. And this coming weekend is the start of the playoffs. Happy to be here, kids. Happy, well, yeah, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll get into that. Um, so we thought it would be fun, uh, fitting for us just to do a little quick uh, sort of NFL playoff predictions roundtable uh, kind of deal. So let, let's, do, let's do AFC Championship, NFC Championship. And then Super Bowl, and then who you think is going to win? Okay, good. I was I was wondering what the best way to go to do this I feel is because like that's the most concise way. And um, don't all at once say the Steelers are going to win the <laughs> Super Bowl. You can't steal that from me. You can't steal my. Um, you can't steal we'll, my thunder. Um, we'll do our best to exercise some restraint. Um, well, how about you start us off then, Pat? Okay, I. Um, it's a little bit controversial, but I am going to have uh, the Chiefs and the Bills in the AFC Championship. Okay. Um, I don't. I like the Titans. Um, oh fuck it! You know they they have Derrick Henry back, don't they? They do. Um, okay, I'm still going to pick the Bills. Um, and uh, NFC, I'm going to say Bucks, Packers, and my Super Bowl is going to be Bucks. I'm sorry. I totally take that back. My Super Bowl is Chiefs Packers with the Packers winning the Super Bowl this year. And I'm saying that also because I have a bet uh, <laughs> on FanDuel that the Packers will win the Super Bowl this year. So that is my that is my playoff predictions. Um, okay. You said that's controversial? Is that controversial? Oh no, most people think that the Titans are going to the AFC oh, championship. Okay. Oh, so it's the Bills, the Bills part of it. Yeah. Okay. Um well, um, I'll go next. Um, I think mine is actually controversial in that I have the AFC Championship. I have Kansas City. <laughs> Don't do this. <laughs> Don't do this. Against the New England Patriots. <laughs> okay. It's because I'm I'm thinking that I'm thinking that New England might take out the Bills, and I'm feeling like second matchup with the Titans, second time they're playing against them in a wild card round or in the playoffs. Um, I think they're going to figure out how to start to stop Derrick Henry. So I see that happening, or at least I'm choosing to believe that there is a universe in which that could happen. And I have Kansas City, you know, beating them by 5,000 touchdowns. <laughs> um, and then... Um, I have yeah the Bucks and uh, the Packers in the NFC Championship, uh, the Chiefs and the Packers in the Super Bowl, and the Packers winning the whole damn thing. That's not fun. I mean, New England and Kansas City—that that's kind of fun. That's kind of fun. That's okay. Yeah, I like that one. Yeah. Um, what do you got, Matt? I'm like sorry. I, I made sure that I had a bracket up before I gave my answers because isn't it like this year they're doing some weird thing where uh whichever team like wins they have to play a certain like it all it all depends on like who wins games on uh 
super wild card weekend where the seating could be different. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um I don't know how that's how how that's structured. I haven't paid much attention to it, but uh for AFC, unfortunately, I am in agreement with John. And I am a, uh I hate the Patriots, but I think sure. they're going to make the AFC championship um and then get absolutely throttled by the Chiefs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. um Chiefs are going to be I, I, Chiefs are going to be tired after a close game with the Steelers. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they, they, I think they might be licking their wounds by then. They'll be playing on crutches. Yeah. I I like Derrick Henry, and I'm glad that he's back, but the Titans just have such a terrible track record in the playoffs mm-hmm. recently. So yeah. I, uh, I'd rather take Mahomes over anybody on the Titans right now. Um, and then... Looking at the bracket that I pulled up, it seems feasible that the Packers could play the Cowboys in the championship, so I'm going to go with that. And then um, there's two different predictions that can be made for me. I could go the safe route and just say Packers-Chiefs, but I kind of want to go controversial and say Patriots-Cowboys. How can we have the most insufferable Super Bowl? (laughs) Because it feels like every year, if Tom Brady's not going to be in it, then NFL is going to figure out how to make it just as insufferable for me personally. Yeah. So yeah. I think uh, Cowboys and Patriots is the only answer. Can you imagine? And I would, in that, I guess I would take Dallas. I don't know. It's it's weird I because... Think, I think the Chiefs will win the whole thing. Oh, really? You're... Okay. I do. E- yeah. Even against the Packers, you're, you're thinking. You're thinking they'll... I... Just, I feel like I have to because I, I just don't want Aaron Rodgers to win the Super Bowl <laughs> this year. I really sure. don't. What if he melts his MVP trophy down and sells it for crypto? That would be funny. Um, those are all good. Yeah, those are all okay. Nice little. I liked Matt's because it was a little. It was not safe. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 Um, I'm never right on these things, anyways. It's like March Madness. Every pick that I make is wrong. So yeah, I will pick the wrong I mean, thing first. Right. Honestly, yeah. the Colts should be in the playoffs, but you know. But everyone yeah. on this podcast is a better quarterback than Carson Wentz, so um, it's hard to make do with that. As I Venmoed out. Trevor Lawrence um, <laughs> on Sunday, so so yeah, yeah, he needs a W. Um, well, great. Well, there now you to have take it. a downturn. Yeah, seriously. Um, well, you, we'll be maybe we'll be uh, we'll be uh, what's wrong looking for checking in. We'll be checking in over the course of the next few weeks and see how see how we're doing. I actually think our next I think our next guests or one of our next guests uh is also somewhat invested in the goings on of the National Football League. So maybe we'll get it. We'll do a check in with her. Matt, what's your favorite football movie? Um It's a good question. Uh I mean, my heart's probably going to have to go with Rudy. Mm. I'm a big Sean Astin fan. Sure. Um, I also like the original Longest Yard, even though I'm a huge Adam Sandler fan. Mm. So the remake is is also fine. Um, Remember the Titans is also good. Mm-hmm. But what about you, Pat? Well, I I like the I love the show Friday Night Lights, but I also love the movie, and I like Any Given Sunday for its sort of uh, brutality. <laughs> Sure. Friday Night Lights, the book, is one of my favorite sports books. Oh, ever. yeah, yeah, I read it in high school. It's an incredible piece of uh, football literature. I remember getting it. I think, I don't know if I got it in high school or 
it might have been it might have been earlier and i was um i was disappointed because i didn't know that it was like a work of nonfiction. And so I thought it was like, uh, you know, I thought it would have all of like the glitz of like the movie and it didn't. And that's, yeah, uh, I've had, I've had really killer taste, uh, from day one, uh, really sophisticated, really sophisticated palette. Um, I'm trying, I don't even know what my answer, pro- mine is probably Rudy. Leatherheads? Isn't that one? Isn't that the George Clooney? <laughs> With John movie? Krasinski? <laughs> oh yeah. Wow. I forgot about that. Um, Invincible invincible with uh with marky mark (laughs) yeah yeah that's a plane movie for me i saw that on a plane the amount of times i've gone home to my parents place and my dad is watching invincible (laughs) like rewatching it i couldn't even count (laughs) it's like his bible at this point yeah it's a dad movie it's a real mind fuck of a movie mark Wahlberg playing a guy who just walks on to the philadelphia philadelphia eagles um (laughs) what are you gonna do with that feels like he could have done that in real life yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, now probably. I think we could at least agree. We'll, we'll probably if you ask it... him, he's probably like, "Oh, Invincible's a better movie than Boogie Nights," and I'm much more proud of of Oh, absolutely. Than Boogie yeah, Nights. yeah. He rides for Invincible over Boogie Nights and The Departed like any any day. Um, yeah. Well, I think what does, and this is the last thing I'll say on this, and then we'll move to the actual meat and potatoes. But I think what at least unites the two of you uh, about your playoff predictions and hopes is that I imagine you are both riding for the Bengals to be uh to lose very handily uh in the first uh round is that accurate yeah I mean I I'm I'm I guess I'm happy for them but um I just don't I don't know we'll see how we'll see how they do we'll see how they do I was a little little surprised that they kind of blew through the Chiefs um but I don't know Joe Burrow I guess I, I guess Joe Burrow has ice in his veins he does yeah He's like he's like a young Ben too. Um, oops, I should probably should. That's probably not a compliment. But I meant a young a, a young football. Yeah. Sure, uh, Ben. Um, he just like takes punishment and just like yeah, fucking chucks it. I I yeah, I get a little nostalgic. Yeah, I've never really been uh, conditioned to despise the Bengals. You know, oh, really? I'm more of a very anti Pittsburgh, anti Baltimore yeah. okay. uh, Browns fan. But that being said, if I don't want to see any AFC North team do well in the playoffs unless it's Cleveland. So uh, yeah. I hope the who they play in the Raiders. I think the I yeah. hope, I'd like to see the Raiders beat the Bengals just because I don't think the Raiders should be there. Mm. <laughs> yeah, with. it's fun. It's like, fun. <laughs> um, although I think it would have been cool if they would have intentionally tied with the Chargers. That would right. be great. Yeah. Maybe not so much for Pat, but, you know. Yeah, that would have been great. It would have been so fun. Um, yeah, I was thinking about that. It's like, you know, Sunday, it's fun. It's like happy to be there, but it's like I kind of don't want to be there. Yeah, you yeah. Know? Like, that, that's like mm-hmm. honestly like you're catching me in, in a good in a good mood probably because I got my um, my booster and my flu shot uh, earlier today. So I'm feeling a little, uh, little loopy, a little wacky. So you're sure. catching me in a good mood, but... Uh, I'm kind of feeling the same way about the Pats currently. There's just a part of me that's like, I mean, must we, must we, uh, <laughs> must we, must we stretch this out any longer? Um, but you know, in this current day and age, at this current juncture, you take what you can get, the small victories. So, uh, speaking of someone who had, <laughs> yeah, speaking of someone I was who see had, how you were gonna, you were gonna handle that. Speaking of someone who had victories, large and small, and failures small and very very large um 
we are here to talk about uh, the movies, or at least a couple movies, and I guess by way of that, the the career of Peter Bogdanovich, um, uh, someone who passed away, uh, it was last week, sometime last week, last, I don't even know, th- Thursday, Wednesday, anyway, sometime last week, um, and... This was a uh, you know something that sent like ripples throughout the entire like film community, um, filmmaking community and television community, I guess, because uh, he was a fixture in television as well. Um, and I tweeted something about Bogdanovich. I tweeted something about the Last Picture Show, which obviously we've talked about on this podcast. Um, and Matt responded to my tweet about doing an episode on it, and then I sort of jokingly responded about like oh like we should get you back on uh, as soon as possible and then as pat and i were talking about we thought actually that would be really great to do an episode um on him and then it worked out well that matt uh was willing to come on um a mere couple weeks after his last appearance um and uh and talk about him um so we're obviously very happy and appreciative of of matt being here um and pulling that together especially with such short notice um so Let's talk a little bit about our experiences with Bogdanovich. Um, we'll start with Matt, and then this is going to be another situation in which, like, I'm kind of coming similar to how I came to the conversation with Tyler, the creator, like, as sort of like a recent convert or someone who's not nearly as probably as knowledgeable about Bogdanovich as the two of you are, because I just saw one of his movies for the first time last month, two months ago. Um, so this is probably another situation in which I will probably be a little less involved in the conversation, but uh, I'm happy to throw it to the two of you and sort of like, yeah, have you sort of uh, give us things to, to talk about. Um, and we're going to be talking about three different movies sort of as our anchor texts, I guess. Um, and we can maybe say a little bit about why why that is. But um, let's start with you, Matt, in terms of sort of what peter bogdanovich means to you or sort of how you arrived at his films and your understanding of sort of like what made him you know uh interesting or worth talking about i guess any of that is is totally fair fair game or none of that is fair game and you can talk about something else i was like i went through like one of those phases in high school where i felt like uh the only way that i could uh present myself as cool as if i knew about film more than (laughs) anyone else in my class it's like I got and I are doing that off. now. So good, God, good for you for getting bullshit, ahead of that. Man. I had to listen to Radiohead all the time, and there's nothing. <laughs> I'm not against... saying it worked. It did not. Yeah, work. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought it would work, and then I had like one friend who matched my energy, and then everybody else was like, "Why are you watching 1960s Italian films? Can you get a life?" Um, yeah. And so they're like, "Haven't you seen Limitless?" School, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um. Where they're like, Battlefield Earth isn't that bad of a movie. Yeah. Right. It's like, yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> but, um, so yeah, I, through my rabbit hole, I went on like a, a, like a huge binge of early 70s flicks. Like for a while, I think like Chinatown was my favorite movie of all time. I thought it was like, nobody's ever made cinema like this before. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I think, so I found, I watched The Last Picture Show and for some reason i ne- i didn't really i didn't really catch on to why it had been so well regarded um it didn't seem as clear cut as like stuff you know like chinatown or like the godfather or even you know the french connection but um when i rewatched it in college i realized 
that I had actually kind of grown up in a town that was more of like the modern equivalent of Mm. the town on display in Last Picture Show. And once I moved away from it, I kind of figured out a little bit more of what Bogdanovich was trying to say with that movie. And I kind of became... Because I had seen uh, What's Up Doc and... um, Paper Moon in high school as well, and like oh. those more than the Last Picture Show. It wasn't until college when I thought the Last Picture Show is like the best. Even though it's not my favorite, I can I am acknowledging though that it's probably his best movie. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So yeah, and then with that, a lot of my poetry, uh, I feel like was heavily influenced by his work. Yeah. I feel like I was I I wanted so badly to kind of conjure the same like environment that he was doing in my work, like same aesthetical feel because uh, if anyone's familiar with my writing, it's I'm kind of obsessed with cowboys, but I'm kind of obsessed with uh, not, not necessarily the, uh, the idea of cowboys that we think of, you know, but more or less like the cowboys that are on display in the last picture show as in like the last remaining people in a dying town Mm. in some, you know, dust bowl area or, you know, in the, in the out West. And I don't know. It's a, it's such a foundational piece of like media. Yeah, totally. Um, Yeah. And if I could just say in terms of, it makes sense knowing that in connection to your work, because my understanding of your work is that you're also interested in like mythology, like sort of like the mythology of like, pop culture and certain like pop Mm -hmm. culture figures and sort of like the emotional i don't know like the quiet emotional aspects or like symbolism at the heart of like what different cultural figures represent um which i think bogdanovich is also really interested in as as well um given his like fixation on like genre and film history and sort of like bringing out some of the more like emotional aspects of these different genres or conventions yeah, and I think the I think he has the probably the best three film run that never gets mentioned as the best. Yeah, I think I don't think Bogdanovich is the, like I don't think from Last Picture Show to Paper Moon is really brought up all that much when put in comparison to other people's three like a, like their three movie runs, you know. Yeah, and that's very interesting that you say three because I actually would. Well, I, I I'll let you finish. I'll let you finish. Are you putting Daisy Miller as a fourth one? No, I'm putting in targets. <laughs> okay, okay. I'm putting in targets. But but I understand I mean, that. But, but part of, but part of the reason why we're talking about these three movies is because they are yeah. part of a three it's like year a trilogy. Run. It's like yeah, it's a, a trilogy. It's a total they, auteur trilogy. And they mm-hmm. were released like literally one year after the other. And I, I think that targets came out in nineteen. Was it nineteen sixty eight? Sixty eight. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So th- that kind of and it is also different from them. It's, it's also but... it it has a reputation. I mean, it was literally like created as a B movie, right? Like literally right. just be they he made targets because Boris Karloff owed Roger Corman, the producer mm. of Targets, he owed him work days. Oh, gotcha. So Roger so just wanted Corman. to like use like yeah, an, yeah. an old I, I, Boris Karloff. I'm I'm getting ahead of myself. Please, 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 Matt. Sorry. That, no, but that that reminds me of when I took a when I took a history of film class in like a history of film before 1960 class in college. There was like a mention. I can't remember the name of the two movies, but 
back when they would do like the B movies that someone, a, a studio filmed an A, like an A movie. And then they would just use the leftover set stuff and film mm-hmm. another movie. Bef- if there was time like left in pro- in their production schedule, they would film a completely different movie using the same sets. Wow. And so that's, that kind of made me think about it mm-hmm. when you're talking about Boris having like extra work days and that's, yeah. they're like, okay, <laughs> well let's film targets. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I I think you could put targets in there and make it a four movie run. The the sentiment I, remains the same. It's one of, of the course, best yeah. runs that no one e- that no one ever says is the best. I think everybody talks about Scorsese's run, and uh, you could put Coppola in there too. Right. Um, Kubrick. Even, they like, talk about Kubrick. But the thing about Kubrick, yeah. but the thing about the thing about Coppola is that he actually had a couple more films under his belt. Before he hits mm-hmm. us with Godfather One, uh, conversation and Godfather Two, I mean, right. the thing I think the other thing to talk about Peter Bogdanovich is like Targets is his first film, like mm-hmm. first total film, uh, and then and then if you think about like the Last Picture Show, which like when it came out, people said this was the best American film since Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's your first like studio film in that it's the best debut since citizen kane yeah it is wild there's a lot of overlap with citizen kane or sorry with orson wells um bogdanovich well so yeah i mean go ahead pat i mean this is this is great i mean like i will say like it was it was kind of interesting that like I was sort of the one. Well, I mean, I guess Matt brought it up, but I was sort of the one who sort of like threw it out there because I'm I'm always very cognizant of like the fact that like we tried to make this podcast like not the kind of podcast that only talks about things that like people on film Twitter talk about, you know, cause sometimes that stuff can get very sort of in the weeds. And sometimes there's just like, not, I don't know if you don't know anything about these directors that maybe like a certain subset of the film community knows about, you know, it's just like not really that interesting to listen to. Um, so I think we try to be kind of cognizant of like, not necessarily talking about like these figures that, you know, again, that are very sort of inaccessible or not super well known. But I think that, there's something really special about Peter Bogdanovich. And also in this, this is really cool because I think, you know, for you, Pat, like this really pulls together something that you are really passionate about in film and something that you really know a lot about and something that like has, is, I think is really formative and um, sort of like foundational to like what you love about film as like a film viewer and as like a film creator um, and writer and stuff like that. Well, thank you. So this, this is me saying go off King. Yeah. Thank you. Well, <laughs> I think, I don't want to like do the biography and stuff, but I think I want to talk about what made him special as a what made him different and special as opposed to the other directors of the New Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So um, the New Hollywood, which was like basically in the 60s, the studio system collapsed um, and young people were going to film schools and they said, Hey, there are these directors in France, Godard, Truffaut. There's these directors in Italy, uh, Fellini, Antonioni, and they make movies that are far more interesting and less corny than what's going on in the American studio system. And because of where sort of America was sort of on Vietnam, um, a lot of civil the civil rights movement there was a lot of sort of interest in moral gray area 
So you get these directors like uh, Bob Rafelson, uh, Stanley Kubrick, uh, Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg, and Peter Bogdanovich, who are making movies that are also sort of downers, too. Now, Peter Bogdanovich doesn't really go into that avenue as much, but they're super popular. And there's this, like, not only is there a film culture among the studios and those directors. I mean, another thing that's sort of lost now is that all of those directors, and yes, I have to acknowledge that, yes, this was entirely dominated by white men, um, but they all talked to each other. And they were all in conversation with each other. And they all gave notes to each other about each other's movies. And because there was an audience for these sort of... I mean, now they're called adult dramas. But back then, they are just movies. You know, the studios kind of let them run away with it. And a guy like Peter Bogdanovich was different than a lot of his peers in that... He was very interested in old American movies. He was obsessed with Howard Hawks and John Ford, who had sort of, uh, people had sort of grown tired of, they had grown tired of Westerns by this point, to an extent. I mean, I'm I'm speaking sort of in in broad terms here. Mm -hmm. And they were much more interested in what was happening in Europe. And Peter Bogdanov was just like, no, 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 I'm only these American classics are like the cinema to me. So his taste was different than those guys. He had like gotten famous because he had done like retrospectives at the MoMA about Hawks and John Ford. And this is the days where like, he just like MoMA was like, here's 70 bucks. Can you do a retrospective on John Ford? And he like, (laughs) Through that, he was able to meet John Ford and like learn directing just by interviewing him, and and he wrote for Esquire too, um, and he was so he had a much sort of older sensibility than those directors, and also I think what was interesting is that he was not like a partier. Those guys like Coppola, Scorsese, De Palma, they snorted and smoked and drank <laughs> whatever they could get their hands on. And even like a guy like Burt Schneider, who produced Last Picture Show, he was a studio head. He, you know, there was weed at every meeting and orgies and all kinds of crazy stuff. And Peter Bogdanovich was like not interested in that. Like he was a film nerd through and through. Like he today. He would have a letterbox and each <laughs> entry would have, you know, this much written. He would have a million right. lists. He was the Sean you Baker know. of his time. Yeah, he grew up yeah, he grew up in the New York City and I was I was just listening to, you know, if people want a real sort of primer on Peter Bogdanovich, there's a great Marin interview that he that Mark Manners reposted again, and it's really great. Um, because mm. not only does he talk about his his own sort of life as a director, but he just talks about an era that just doesn't exist anymore. You know, he's like growing up in New York city. He saw like hundreds of movies. Mm-hmm. Just, you could just go to a move. You could just go to theaters, rep theaters and just bang them out. Um, so, and I think as a, as a filmmaker, what interests me so much about him is, yeah, like how, how his, his three film run is, is, still hasn't been touched. Um, but also 
you know, he was really kind of interested in in things like framing and I guess where where a lot of those new Hollywood directors were really interested in sort of like the dourness of the frame and sort of um, mumbling and, and just kind of like the very kind of slice of life stuff from the Europeans, which I think Peter Bogdanovich is sort of interested in a way. But sure. everything is so classical and it's so efficient in its framing and, and there's such a, a, a pace to it too that... You know, it's interesting, like, Last Picture Show was kind of like a throwback hit in, and and so was What's Up, Doc. They're all three kind of throwbacks, like, genre-wise, <laughs> yeah. but they're not at all throwbacks because we watch them today and we're like, why is that the best thing I've ever seen? Yeah, so and they're able to that, do things that you weren't able to do. Yeah, the, in like the, original, the reification you know. of the genre, but it doesn't feel old. It doesn't feel like a sample of something, and I think that's like that's something that's you know so so astounding. Um, yeah, especially because like I don't know. I mean, it, it's impossible to talk about retreads and remakes now because that that system has become so it's so corporate now and it's like impossible to, to do something that is, that is new, but I don't know. I mean, it's so corporate now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I haven't seen no way home. Um, and we're going to stay that way. Um, so yeah, I don't know. We could get, we could, we could get, we could talk about his first wife, Polly Platt and how she was also kind of like the power behind the throne, mm-hmm. you know, and, and how they were like really, really close collaborators and like, even during when he he stopped coming back to their room and started going to Civil Shepherd's room, right? She kept it together on set, and of course would cry at night. But because they the two of them were such movie nerds, and they just believed in the power of like fucking making it happen, scrappy little art makers. And I think um, she worked on What's Up Doc as well, even after oh yeah. he had oh left yeah. her for Civil Shepherd. Oh yeah. There's yeah, there's there's so much there's a lot to pick apart just in Last yeah. Picture Show. There's so I mean you know Sybil Shepherd dating Jeff Bridges, then Jeff Bridges goes night night and Peter Bogdanovich who had from what I've read he had no swag, he had <laughs> no swag until he became a director. He was a real bookish kind of like, you know neurotic kind of New Yorker, sure. and then all of a sudden. Yeah, which you know ended up to be his, you know, downfall. kind of part of his downfall. But but yeah, did I did I talk? Was that interesting? Was that boring? I don't know. I I, I mean I, I was that so. interesting or was that too much? Yeah. Okay. No, no, I think that's good. That's a nice. That's a good synthesis of it all. Yeah, and I think that's a good way to sort of yeah, that's a good. It's a good thing to touch touch on because I think that Bogdanovich, I think he's a really great. I think he just makes for a better starting point, like quietly, like a much better starting point for a lot of this stuff than some of the other people that we think of as being more emblematic of the new Hollywood movement. Um, because he does give you that foundation of like working with old conventions, older types of stories, older film genres, but just in doing something that feels different. I was watching the last picture show uh, just last night. I was rewatching it um, with Sarah and she was just kind of astounded at some of the stuff that was happening because you, even though you know it's it's made in the 70s, you just feel like 
certain things shouldn't be happening in this particular type of movie. And I mm. think that's kind of similar with moments of less so what's up doc, but also moments in paper moon. Um, and it's just, it's just such a great way of showing like what filmmakers were doing at the time in terms of like establishing a reverence for their, the con- you know, the conventions of their genre and their, mo- you know, the modalities that they're working in, but also doing something new. And I like the fact that he just, no aspect of him, you don't get the whole, like, I'm going to fucking torch this thing to the ground kind of aura, which sometimes you can get from no. other people in that world, which can sometimes, sometimes is good, but I don't know. Sometimes it just doesn't always make for the most engaging or inviting sort of atmosphere, especially for someone who's not super steeped in, you know, pages and pages of this kind of stuff in the way that um, some people on this podcast are. <laughs> um, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I was thinking, I, I, I think uh, you can leave this in here or not. I think we should start at, at Paper Moon and go backwards. And I think we should end on The Last Picture Show. Bold. Bold. Because I'm, I think... I'm here for it. I don't know. Not that there's less to... I, that doesn't mean... I'm not denigrating Paper Moon and What's Up, Doc, because they're I, I'd never seen them before. I also mm-hmm. should say that. I've never seen them before the past 20, 48 hours. But I don't know. I think we should have its own... Last Picture Show should be its own meditation. That works for me. That's yeah, not an agreement. That. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny because Paper Moon is my favorite of the three. Oh, great! So if we we can start with that if, for sure. Yeah, Matt, do you want to just give us like a little little log line for for Paper Moon? <laughs> to the extent um, that it's possible, I think that I so I think there is a very clear. Um, Bogdanovich to Wes Anderson pipeline that exists and mm. it also doesn't help that I mean it helps that um that Polly is like sort of credited with helping discover Wes Anderson so mm. uh I didn't know that um yeah like later on I think I don't know the details I just I, I remember reading that and mm. I don't know Paper Moon is almost is pretty much a one of my few movies that I've seen that I think is perfect like from start to finish. I, I I think it's a wonderfully told story and I love um I love the way that Ryan and Tatum O'Neill act together. I hmm. like even and it's kind of sad too because I know in real life Ryan and Tatum had a very strained relationship hmm. and but you would never know that watching the movie. Like they they perform so well and I mean it's clear because Tatum is still like the youngest uh oscar winner for mm-hmm. this movie mm-hmm. yeah and so 10 years old which is nuts it's just nuts yeah i think that i mean if we want to get into some really hot takes i think that that record probably should have been broken by jacob tremblay for room a few years ago mm-hmm. i thought that he was insane in that movie yeah and uh, yeah no, you're absolutely right i but it's it's very cool that it's held up um i don't know if that says more about the quality of her performance or maybe the lack of like meaningful performances that are handed out to child actors. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Um, it's probably a combination. But then, like, I mean, we can, uh, we can talk about Ryan O'Neill again when we talk about what's up doc. Um, because the star of the show is Tatum O'Neill. She's mm. like, the, she, she carries paper moon yeah. on her back. Yeah. Uh, it's like, a, it's a, you know, it's a fantastic, homage to john ford and it is i don't know it's just it's one of those movies that i just feel great watching it's Mm -hmm. it's a very it's it's very funny 
gets serious and then it has a very rewarding ending yeah um and like not saccharine at all really yeah it's kind of crazy because i had forgot that paper moon is the third movie in the in out of the three um it always feels like paper moon comes right after last picture show but it doesn't Mm. Um, mostly because they have a very similar aesthetical feel right both black and white they it feels like they take place in the same universe but yeah, I don't. I just love Paper Moon. I don't know. Yeah. I can't say I can't say enough good things about it. it <laughs> yeah, it's just it's uh, it's one of the first movies that I showed to my girlfriend when we started dating like four years ago. I was like, she was like, "Tell me about some movies you love." And I'm like, "Okay, well, we gotta watch Paper Moon. <laughs> mm. We gotta watch this insanely good movie." Mm-hmm. Um, and it went over well. I'm assuming. Absolutely. How can you? I mean, yeah. I don't know how you can feel anything but joy watching yeah. paper moon it's yeah it's just yeah it's that, that that's a good like that's a good litmus test because like with with some movies like they they can be your favorite and you can show them to like a friend or romantic partner and if they're not into them mm-hmm. like it just might mean that like oh like you know this is just not their bag or maybe they're just not really really a film person but with paper moon it's just like if you don't like this movie it means that you're probably a monster <laughs> and if you're <laughs> a monster then you know this isn't going to work out um because that's a deal <laughs> that's breaker funny. for me um, like if you show someone the last picture show and they're like, oh, I didn't really like the orgy scene. I get it. Yeah. Like, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, like it's totally. not everybody. It's not for everybody. Yeah. Um, or <laughs> like, but like with paper boot, it's just from, from start to finish. It's, it's just a yeah. joyous experience. Yeah. No. Yeah, it is. I think it doesn't get enough. It doesn't get enough credit either. I'm not to say that the last picture show, like undeservedly overshadows it, but I think that maybe we can make a little room for both in the conversation. Mm. Right. Yeah. You know? No, yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I had heard so, yeah, so little little about it. And I was kind of like, I was a little skeptical about it going into just based on what it's about, which I, I guess I should just say it's about Ryan O'Neill plays um, plays a, a grifter, essentially. He's a grifter who sells Bibles to people. He's a scammer. Uh-huh. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, this, he sells Bibles to people who are grieving. I won't say too much about how, the exact, uh, you know, intricacies of that. You'll, you can watch the movie and find out. But he... Um, he goes to the grave of a woman that he used to be romantically involved with, um, and he essentially just gets handed this woman's young child, um, who is very intelligent and precocious, uh, intellectually precocious and emotionally precocious in her own ways. Um, and he essentially decides, he agrees to bring this child to uh, her last remaining or her last known kin. Um, a couple towns over, and this t- this takes place. It's it, it's a um, it takes place during the depression. It's a depression era film, um, and yeah, so he just kind of brings her along, and they get into various misadventures along the way. Um, I, th- I feel like it's kind of a, a good general overview um, of the movie, and obviously, you know, they they become like more attached to one another and have moments where they're not so attached, and they you know it, they're very evenly matched because Ryan O'Neill's character is um is is. I mean, he's he's not terribly dumb, but he is kind of he's dumb in in some ways, or just like doesn't have much in the he doesn't have much going. He's on, a himbo. He's a himbo. Yes, he <laughs> is a himbo. Outsmarted by a seven year old. Yeah, who among us? Who among us? I um, mean, absolutely. Uh, yeah. So, Pat, what was your what was your uh, takeaway with this having having watched it um, for the first time? Well, I was really really taken aback by it but i was also like oh that he is like also kind of in conversation with bonnie and clyde too mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i think where 
Bonnie and Clyde is about the sort of nihilism of the depression <laughs> and yeah. like you know we're gonna we're gonna fucking burn this motherfucker to the ground this movie is very much i don't know but it, it is about desperation too like the movie is about desperation and everyone is desperate and like i was really kind of i don't know i i to me the movie is just about people who are just trying to figure it out and people who who lie to each other and people who put up false fronts like you think about the guy who like the bootlegger isn't he related to the the pol- police chief or they're like in cahoots yeah and then yeah. they spend so much time at a at a circus no i'm sorry at the carnival yeah which i was like okay this is about you know like again like sort of like uh empty empty pleasure you know the car like the carnival is all about you know sort of performativeness and you know these people believe like the people who he's selling the bibles to they believe him you know right. so there's sort of like this hollow sort of like religiosity um but yeah no i was just kind of just struck at how how quaint it was and you know i guess it is a buddy film it is like a it is like a road trip film. Yeah, buddy road you know? trip. But yeah, it doesn't totally. feel like a road trip film because it do- it's not meandering. You know, it's not like, oh, mm-hmm. now we're here and we're going to think about stuff. It's very like, bop, 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 which I think is a testament to his sort of, his love of older films. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, um, <clears throat> yeah, I think in a lot of way, like, Tatum O'Neill is sort of like, a, yeah, she's, I, this is, I don't think this is a, an interesting or a hot take, but she's like, she's a Shirley Temple sort of type character for a new generation. And what's mm. cool is that they actually allow her to be precocious in the sense that she swears in the sense that she smokes and that, you know, there's just like this way in which you can actually illustrate like what kind of character she is without having to like abide by like the Hayes code or all these different like production codes. So it just allows, I don't know, the characterization just feels so so fully realized um, and so explicit in ways that just allow, yeah, the dynamics to just play out in much more, I don't know, just vivid and interesting ways. Um, And yeah, fun fact. uh, So the screenplay is by Alvin Sargent, who is the screenplay, who's the screenwriter for another. uh, So this, this apparently this is based on a book. So uh, he's the, he was a screenwriter for another, uh, book-ish adaptation that we've talked about on this podcast very recently. Do you know what that is, Pat? Give me a hint. Um, it's an adaptation of... It's not a novel. Uh, it's a type of book that has a lot of pictures in it. Uh, a lot of speech bubbles. A lot of whams and bangs. No. <laughs> Close. Superman? That we've talked about on this podcast. This podcast. Yeah. It's not DC. Think Marvel. Spider-Man 2. He's the screenwriter for Spider-Man 2. Really? Isn't that nuts? <laughs> he must be a thousand years 3. old. Yeah. Wait, oh what did you say, God. Matt? He said he must be He's, a thousand. He also did, he did Spider-Man 3 as well. Oh, okay. Wow. Well, well, we won't talk about that. Um, that's, where, that's where the darkness comes in, I guess. Um, but yeah, nothing bangers all the way down mm-hmm. wow yeah dude's got range 
Um, yeah, no, this it's really a really really lovely movie. Um, I'm gonna advocate for just because I because this is the way that I watch them. I'm gonna advocate for watching these movie in chronological these movies in chronological order. Mm. But but this is also I can also argue for this being a good a good starting point. But this I don't know. I found it very rewarding to watch it at the end of the the sort of three three movie mm-hmm. run as well. Um, but yeah, you can't go wrong. Right now it's um it's streaming on Showtime. Uh, if you have access to Showtime or Showtime anytime, that's how I watched it. Yes, um. scam like <laughs> Ryan, scam somebody like uh, Ryan O'Neill and and snag a Showtime subscription. Yeah, yeah. and then watch Yellow Jackets and get fucking so angry yeah. at Yellow yeah. Jackets because yeah. nothing happens. Really, get your money's worth. Um, oh, I have some frames if we want to look at them. Oh yeah, totally. Um, so I, I'm I'm really here. How do I? Oh, boomer alert, boomer alert. How do I do this? Okay. Yeah. Let's bring some visual components into this audio, uh, this audio, this audio. Um, I really, program. so I, I sp- speaking about uh, the scene at the carnival, I really think this is one of the most beautiful frames I've seen like in, in some time. Um, can you, can you tell us where, where it is, what did you search in order to find it in case the audience? Well, so I, 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 uh, my production company, we, we subscribe to a website called Shot Deck. Uh, okay. Which is, uh, you can search for any, like a lot of movies and you can kind of be like, all right, what, what format do we want? What aspect ratio? And then, you know, okay. Uh, someone's watching, like, uh, you can search by kind of set. So, um, unfortunately we, I, I can, I'll put these on the Instagram. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But I love this frame. It is of, what is her, what is, what is the character's name? Why can't I remember it? Uh, Addie. Addie, yeah. Addie. Addie is is staring at uh this stand at the at the carnival and above the it it's like a, a banner that says Harem Slave and it's these scantily clad uh women and it's just this like it's this thing where it's like, oh she's a child like in a man's world, like an adult world. Yeah. And there's a little something sort of sort of wrong and she's totally unsupervised but she can also fend for herself right yeah and everyone is just in front of this carnival barker just waiting for whatever the the harem show is and i just like it that like she knows better than them and she's distanced from the group kind of like looking at them like they're a bunch of fucking idiots (laughs) um yeah, it's it's a movie in which like yeah we we get a lot of indications that like she you know everyone that she is surrounded by or at least you know in the context of this road trip like they all are you know terrible people in their own ways or are fuck ups in their own ways and are you know like there's kind of like this I don't know you kind of understand like why she was so quick to sort of go along with mm. um, Ryan O'Neill's character what's his what's his name what's that character's name I can't remember Mose. Moe's, yeah, yeah, you right. She's so willing to go along with his grift because she's learning, you know, all of this from this, you know, incredibly corrupt world that she's uh, trying to grow up in. I yeah, love... The, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, sorry. Oh, no, I was going to just switch to the to the first scene, which is the, the funeral, which is kind of mirrored um, in the last picture show with the, the death of... Um, the death of Sam the Lion. Um yeah, I don't know. I, I again, that's like the John Ford influence, like the widescreen sort of empty, the the sort of vastness of the West. Um, 
and uh yeah i don't know i I love this i love this frame so symmetrical and pretty yeah yeah it's incredibly shot movie just in general um what else do i have here yeah and i yeah have you guys ever seen badlands i haven't seen badlands yet i'm very naughty i need to change that very soon yeah it's um i don't know this movie's also in conversation with with badlands too about sort of like driving around the expanse of the midwest Mm -hmm. you know but on the run too yeah i think i like this shot too because you see the jawline of (laughs) <laughs> of Tatum O'Neill, which is a, a line, which is sort of like a, uh, a a gag that's that's brought up numerous times that they have to be real. They that uh, Mose has to be her father because of uh, they share the same jawline. So, right, right. Which they do obviously in real yes. life because they are in fact yep. <laughs> father and daughter, which is so which is so fun. I I, I am an idiot and did not realize that they were uh, father and daughter until the very end. Um, Maybe that's. I, I kind of wish that you never found that out. Um, you know what I mean? You were just oh, blissfully yeah. ignorant the whole time. Yeah. It's kind of like how when I watched uh, the Teddy Perkins episode of Atlanta, and I didn't know until I was reading about the <laughs> the Classic. episode until after that um, Teddy Perkins is, in fact, played by Donald Glover. Um, yeah. Sometimes it's good to be. It's good to be ignorant. Um, well, speaking of Ryan O'Neill, let's move on to... Uh, the next movie uh, that um, is in back in backwards order um, is part of this trilogy. Um, so what's up, Doc? Uh, Pat, do you want to say a little bit about what this movie is about? Can you give a log line if possible? Well, it's sort of a, it's it's sort of a remake of the great Howard Hawks movie, Bringing Up Baby, mm-hmm. and it is about a uh, a musicologist who arrives in San Francisco to at this sort of convention and he sort of uh, who the characters played by Ryan O'Neill and Barbara Streisand sort of by way of her quirkiness also appears at the same hotel ho- hosting this uh, musicology convention. And she is very struck by him. She sort of falls in love with him and um she sort of scams lies her way into his heart yeah concurrently to their sort of uh little romance um there is a uh, a set of jewels that uh some gangsters want to steal and then there's also these secret government plans that um these two factions want to steal and the jewels the plans and Barbara Streisand's luggage and Ryan O'Neill's luggage, they're all in the same case, the same ugly plaid pattern case. Mm -hmm. So, you know, trying to recover which case, confusing which case, you know, going into each other's hotel rooms and they're, they're all, they're all also staying in, uh, in the same, they're staying at the same hotel. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Wacky hijinks ensue. I had never seen it before yesterday yeah i i hadn't i hadn't seen it uh before i i I had heard of it just as like a screwball comedy like from Mm. the 70s sort of like well you know 40 years this is 30 40 years after like the screwball comedy sort of had its heyday in the in the in the 30s and 40s um so i just knew about it so i I just didn't i didn't 
think it was worth checking out because I was like, how good could it actually be? Why wouldn't I just watch like Bringing Up Baby or It Happened One Night or, you know, some other screwball comedy? Um, mm. And yeah, I, I got the sense, Pat, that you were you were quite taken with this movie. Is that accurate? Yeah, it was, it was just so funny. And it's just such a, a talky movie. And even I guess, yeah, some of the jokes haven't aged terribly well. I don't mean in since terms of content i just mean okay it's not that funny but it's Mm -hmm. just so tight it's so tightly wound um yeah the movie kind of never lets up um and barbara streisand is just something (laughs) she's really cool yeah and they have great chemistry too because he's kind of playing against type as this like nerdy neurotic guy who wears glasses which is playing against type because we all see him and we know he's hot right he's clearly like not trying to be the guy which is the exact same thing that Cary grant was doing and bringing up baby so i think that you know yes yes i think bogdanovich very much knew what he was doing in that in that case yeah i mean i would even argue like I, i don't know i i feel i wrote this in my letterbox review but like i feel like the hit rate for the jokes in this movie is like a thousand I really yeah, think that yeah, like everything, everything for me lands. Um, it's it's just really fucking funny. Uh, mm. And yeah, you're absolutely right about their chemistry. Like I don't know, I I haven't seen a ton of Barbara Streisand films. Um, I won't lie, but I've seen like her. I've seen clips of her and stuff. And I don't know. This is the first movie that I've seen her in where I where I like get it. Where I'm like, oh, I understand why she is such like a cultural force because she is just. She is. She's a, she is a force to be reckoned with in every sense of the word of the phrase uh, in this movie. Well, like before this movie, she had like her her films were musical ad- adapt adaptations, mm, right? You know, like she shared the Oscar with uh, Catherine Hepburn for when she did Funny Girl, mm-hmm. and then she was in uh, Hello Dolly, I right. think. Yes, like yeah, right yeah. after that, and then this was really like her first big non-singing role yeah and, she, and i like and i have to agree with pat she's just she's wonderful you know yeah uh, she is great i mean do you guys think that this the one of the last quotes in this movie the being in love never means having to say you're sorry <laughs> yeah. where does that rank in all-time great final movie lines you know i mean it's gotta be up there hmm. it's, it's gotta, gotta be, be top there. 10 right like mm-hmm. it, it's I, I don't know. It just, yeah, I think it's a, it's a perfect ending specifically for this movie. I don't really like, I can't really grade like end quotes on like how universally good they are. Yeah. And, but if, if an end quote can like perfectly capture mm-hmm. the essence of a movie, then yeah. it's done its job. And I, I think, I think this one is absolutely a, a top yeah. tier yeah, it's. I mean, it's. It's just great because it's so. It's obviously super self refer not self referential, but it's referential in the fact that you know it is alluding to a quote from Love Story, which Ryan O'Neill mm-hmm. was in, uh, which everyone knew. And then there's a sort of like moment of negation of that line as well. So it's perfect because it is like, yeah, it's just it's doing exactly what the movie does, which is like paying homage to like other movies, like other conventions, but also kind of like rejecting them at the same time um and there are like some moments where like ryan o'neill also like looks at the camera and will say yeah, like, like health or he'll shit. be like 
yeah and he'll be like or he'll say like this isn't actually like she's pretending to be my wife but she's not actually my wife so it, it really does a lot of great work for the yeah just just in terms of like i said encapsulating the the movie as a whole um so yeah i found the ending to be like incredible it's just the ending sequence to be incredibly satisfying um yeah when, when did you see this movie for the first time uh matt did you say it was it was in high school i think so i i, I feel like i watched all three of these movies around the same time in high school but i had only seen it that time and then i rewatched it before we did this episode mm-hmm. because it was the one that i hadn't seen since my first watch like gotcha. i've seen last picture show and paper moon a few times uh respectively uh since high school and so now i was like okay i need to really rewatch this one because it's the one that i like i can quote more things from what's up doc than the other two but it's the <laughs> one i for some reason am least is am the least familiar with just because i haven't seen it in so long yeah mm-hmm. yeah he um i and i assume i mean if, if, if you were anything like me in high school which you probably weren't uh you're probably a lot cooler and probably knew a lot more things um <laughs> i i probably wouldn't have gotten like a lot of like the screwball stuff like i wouldn't have gotten like the conventions of screwball comedy so is that something that like you remember getting when you first saw it or something that you kind of get more that you've watched it as someone who probably has you know deeper understanding of the genre and the conventions of it and stuff like that i think when i first saw it i appreciated it as what i like the level of understanding that i had about film at Mm -hmm. the time and then i watched bringing up baby Mm -hmm. and his girl friday and then i like really got it yeah you know i like and so this was the first time that I had actually seen What's Up Doc af- like after watching those two Howard Hawks movies. And so re-watching it with that caveat of like, this is what he is paying an homage to. It's a, it hits differently, yeah. you know, on that watch because he pays respects to Howard so well, I think, in this movie. Yeah. But he almost sometimes does the screwball thing a little bit better that might be a hot take i don't know i i don't think it is because i his girl friday is one of my favorite movies ever mm-hmm. and but i think that at such a fast pace like you said john the way the jokes land it's just constant hit by yeah. hit by hit and uh there's like obviously his girl friday came out in what 1940 so not all of the jokes from his girl friday are still gonna stick like right. 80 years later but I do think that he that I, I think Bogdanovich kind of captures the the timeless joy of like love mm. portrayed in screwball movies. Mm. I think he yeah. and maybe not and if not love, then like the very minimal like sense of romance. We yeah, also like seeing that opposites amazingly. Attract. Yeah. That's very cathartic. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I'm I'm thinking about like that. Yeah. That the first scene where Ryan O'Neill is looking to get uh, Advil, and Barbara Streisand is like, will not let like will not let him have a minute to himself in the in the little hotel store. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. There's that scene. I mean, like I the I have watched like you you can just you go on YouTube like movie clips whatever has like the you know that that first scene where they where they meet. Um, and I've watched that like four or five times just over and over again since uh, since watching the movie, just because it's just so fun to relive each time that 
and the um and the banquet scene is really fucking funny and then the um the courtroom scene is just Mm -hmm. is hysterical um like a lot of screwball comedies I, i i do get a little bit it loses me just like momentarily like in the chaos Mm. and wackiness of it all like those are never my Mm -hmm. favorite moments of screwball comedies um so i was as that was all happening i was kind of like oh i I don't know if i'm necessarily as with it as i was before and then just like the last 10 minutes of it totally got me back in and i feel like it totally like you know stuck the landing i guess um but i don't think that's a hot take at all matt i i think that there's something to be said for yeah, like revisiting genres or certain stories or types of stories while just being able to use, I don't know, to imbue it with a certain sense of, in this case, I think there's a sense of warmth it's, that it's a I, cozy think, movie. I know I'm supposed it's to get when I watch. Movie. Yeah, and, and I know I'm supposed to get that when I watch like those older ones, but they just it just doesn't land as much for me, especially because of how stylized they are and the way that they talk and the way that they act. Um, it just doesn't, yeah, it just doesn't always work. Um, it's kind of like, this is, a really brief aside um but like you know people understandably were getting really down on like the west side story remake when it was first announced and I, you can say whether you think it's an incredible movie versus a good movie or a terrible movie but i think there are at least moments in that movie for me where i i get it where i'm like oh there is something to be said for revisiting something with a very accomplished director who has mm. all these things at his disposal and you know allowing certain scenes or allowing certain aspects of the movie to just yeah you can just do cooler things than they were able to do because it's you know 50 60 years later so i don't know if that i feel the same way yeah and i feel the same way about sort of like i think polanski did the like the noir genre in Chinatown better than like john houston did in the 40s like i think that and it's probably there's a little bit like a little bit of the reason is just having a like m- more access to like just better materials, you know, mm-hmm. and having better production. But I, I also think that some of these like um, homages to films, older films from the same genre um, are just kind of written better. You know, I think yeah. they they are written maybe not in a more universal way, but in, in maybe a more digestible way even though chinatown is maybe one of the most complicated <laughs> movies to follow after seeing. right but, right yeah but there's also there's precedent for that as well obviously in a lot of like the noirs too so you know absolutely um yeah no i just yeah i just i really i had a really delightful delightful time with this um yeah i don't know is there anything we got anything else we want to say about it we want to move on yeah why don't we just go to the should we move to the grand finale creme de la creme <laughs> yeah um, so Last Picture Show came out in 1971, uh, his second movie, and this is kind of the hardest movie to describe plot-wise, because it really doesn't have <laughs> one um, in a traditional sense, but it's essentially just like a uh, town on the on the Texas, it's a Texas town, like on the border, um, and it, very poor, sort of run-down town, and it really centers on like the lives of three teenagers three i think they're high school seniors um just kind of like trying to figure it all out dealing with love and romance and um 
yeah there are like many other characters in this town like everyone knows each other everyone knows each other's business and many people are up Mm. to things that they shouldn't be up to and are sleeping with people they shouldn't be sleeping with um or have secret lives that they're you know trying to to no avail to hide from everyone else and yeah it's just like a pretty like it's a it's a pretty um realistic and sad portrait of a very desolate poor rundown american town um is that is that essentially it's pretty good yeah. capture it yep um pretty accurate uh, features um, Jeff Bridges, and I th- I don't know if it was his first role, but definitely definitely one of his first roles. Um, Timothy Bottoms and then Sybil Shepherd. They're the three. They're the three teenagers. Um, Timothy Bottoms and uh, Jeff Bridges are like two two best friends, and Sybil Shepherd plays um, Jeff Bridges' uh, girlfriend, whom Timothy Bottoms also has feelings for. Um, so there's like. As you can imagine, things get complicated on that front. Well, we all have feelings for her. Yeah, you. Yeah, I mean, Absolutely. you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Sybil Shepherd is probably like one of the most beautiful women to ever be on, uh, in the moving pictures. Um, she's really something in this. Yeah, and this was her first movie. Like, I guess Peter Bogdanovich literally casted her because she was like a model, and he like would see her on like magazines. Well, it was very like that. important was like, that she looked. I want like her in my movie. She would break hearts, which successful. Yeah, totally. Yeah, mission accomplished. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I first saw her in Taxi Driver. Like that was right. I because I watched Taxi Driver before I watched yeah, Last same. Picture Show, and um, going backwards and seeing her in the Last Picture Show is very. It's almost jarring. It's a little jarring compared to her role in Taxi Driver. Totally, yeah. Two two very different um, setups for Sybil, I would say. Yeah, yeah. It's cool to watch her. She she's definitely like she's definitely green and like rough around the edges in like the right ways. I'm saying this after having just seen Licorice Pizza for the second time, and so seeing mm-hmm. Cooper Hoffman and uh, Alana Haim like I don't know. There's some. I just I I called that to mind for for some reason, just in terms of like how cool it can be to see like these people who have never been in front of a camera in this particular way, like being asked hmm. to play these types of characters. There's sometimes like magic, sometimes magic uh, can come from it. I agree. And yeah, I, I already gushed about this movie. Um, I talked about it on my, uh, on our top, top five uh, first watches of 2021. So I already gushed about this movie. So people who listen to that know that I just what I, 25 minutes into this movie. I just knew I was like, Oh, fuck yeah like this is like this is just a, an incredible movie and it's like everything that i love about yeah about movies and mm. the hank williams soundtrack does or the the constant hank williams neil drops does something for me because he's one of my favorites and i remember you know like, i noticed this time what do you guys remember that fucking yodeling kid yes yes yeah yeah, he, yeah. the walmart yodeling he, kid he covers one of the songs yeah. in this in this film lovesick mm-hmm. blues yeah i think for a lot of people that was probably their introduction to hank williams <laughs> um for better or for worse <laughs> you know what Ugh. he did in that sense he did us a service talk about a child um, star um yeah 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 move over tatum o'neill mm-hmm. new sheriff mason ramsey's in the building yeah mason ramsey um do you know what I really like about this movie? What? Upon each rewatch, 
you can kind of pick a different character to travel with. Yeah. Because the totally. cast isn't isn't too big, but each each member of the town is so specific and so well, I guess yeah, specific in their own little struggle. And like each time it can be totally your your experience of the film can be as rich and and different than a previous time. Like this time I was really like, you know what? I'm really going to pay attention to um Sybil's mom. Yeah, you know, and it's it's very rare that a film can have so many people on the periphery. Like a film that you can I can sort of compare this to not in terms of plot but in terms of aesthetic and mood and pacing is Red Rocket. Mm-hmm. Have you seen Red Rocket, Matt? I have. You have seen it. But but y- you can't go on the same journey with the supporting cast of Red Rocket as you can do with Last Picture Show. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's and true. And I I, th- I think that's that's pretty pretty rare. Yeah, it's the kind of movie where yeah, I mean like just in the first 5 minutes like there there's a character doing something that has a different different significance if you know what happens, you know, at the very end of the movie. And just right away, I I wasn't sure if I was going to rewatch it because I I didn't know if I was going to have time, but I I was able to to squeeze in a rewatch. Um, and just within five minutes of that, I was like, oh, I'm so glad that I rewatched this because mm. like I'm realizing just how special and how like layered this movie is. Um, even more so because I I really thought I was like I think I got the main idea. Like I would obviously love to rewatch this movie, but I don't need to. But mm. it definitely hit home like how yeah how rewarding it is to to go with these characters and engage with them. Like after knowing some things um, that you didn't know the first time, you know, when you watched it. Definitely. Matt, I'm, I'm kind of interested more in, in, in your poetry and, and the influence this, I wonder if you could like maybe elaborate further on, on the influence that this movie has had on, on your poetry. Um, Cause wh- where are you from? Are, are you from Ohio? So you're from like the Rust Belt. I'm from yeah. I'm from uh, a little rural town of three thousand people uh, in Northeast Ohio, um, pretty close to Youngstown. Yeah, but uh, it's kind of like a, like what we touched on a little bit when we were talking about sort of the gist of the movie and about um, you know this uh, small town where everybody knows everybody, everybody knows everybody's business. You know, I, I lived through that growing up. You know, a town so small that whenever something happens, everybody knows exactly what happened, who it happened to. And um, when I was when I when I write, I think it I think that Bogdanovich's uh, influence might come out a little bit better on my next book than it does my first book. Because um, I think that he knows how to tell a very empathetic and generous story for his characters um, for like who live in a town that maybe is not so generous. I, I think he, I think he does that quite well. I think there's a very necessary romance to the way he portrays people in the last picture show. And so I kind of wanted to, when I'm writing poetry, 
that is about myself in relation to the place I come from. I'm, I'm trying to evoke that same generosity towards the people that I grew up around mm-hmm. and for better or for worse. You know, I think that um, I have a lot of gripes with my hometown as most people do. Um, mm. But I think that, I think that what Bogdanovich gets like really nails in this movie is the, some of the, beautiful parts about a town that's basically dying you know because the town is almost completely just off the grid at this Mm. point but there's there's little parts of it like you know the the like religion of going to the movie theater in this Mm. movie it 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 feels it's so rich and i'm trying and i always am like striving to capture that same richness of, of something that's kind of that in any other place in the world would be seen as arbitrary, but in yeah. this place it is, it is so important. It's so focal that when it closes down, you know, yeah. it's, it completely throws the whole town out of whack basically. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Like the, the ritual, the quiet ritual of it all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we should say that. Yeah. I mean like a, a big part of the movie, like we'd be, we'd be remiss to talk about this movie. We didn't also say that like kind of like the, like uh the centerpiece of it like both like the centerpiece of the town and the centerpiece of the story is um is a movie theater and a pool hall and a cafe that is owned by this older guy uh named named sam the lion who is kind of like the spiritual like he's like the heartbeat of the movie um is the heartbeat of the town and is yeah is one of the one of the characters that even though it's a movie that is very much about youth He's one of like the I don't know two or three characters that I feel like have the most sort of like oomph to them in terms of like how heartbreaking they are, and um, but that's not at the expense. Uh, it's it's not as if like you know the 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 youth the the the, ch- the teenage characters are like thin or all or do- not not substantial at all. It's just it's a matter of how incredible these performances are mm. and how great um, you know the screenwriter and and Bogdanovich are at you know at. Um, I don't know, just honing in on these characters. And I think it does help that I think um, uh, Larry... McMurtry. McMurtry, yeah. He he wrote the book that it's based on as well, yeah. right? So he's, you know, so he's adapting, yeah. Which sometimes that doesn't go particularly well, people adapting their own their own works, but he manages to do it, I think, with Bogdanovich's help quite, quite well. Um, you can tell that he just, like, really loves these characters, even if the characters don't love each other. Um, and worse, don't love themselves. Mm. <laughs> that's very true <laughs> all right i have my favorite frames from this film okay hit us if the, if the final frame is not in this collection <laughs> <I'm leaving. laughs> it is it is he's leaving okay, he's, del- he's deleting his audio i'm del- <laughs> trying to trying to i'm not uh, sending you the rough cut i'm out of here <laughs> i uh you don't have that final frame in there uh, the final frame combined with the final so- the credit song is just remarkable I really mm-hmm. love this frame mm-hmm. because it, it's of Sybil Shepherd, and it's sort of as she's approached by really her, the man that her mother has been cheating on her father with, mm-hmm. the oil rig worker, the yeah. Derrick worker. Mm-hmm. And he lights her face in such a way, she's lit in such a way where her head is in darkness and sort of her torso is in darkness, but her face is angelic and and totally lit and i don't know it's it's yeah it's a bit like virginal kind of like gonna sort of 
the deflowerment but i don't know i i i thought this frame was just so i i think it's so beautiful yeah um, there's something like very like noir ish about it but it's also being used for such different effects that i was gonna say very kind of femme fatale but also turning that on its head yeah yeah which is just is probably go ahead ahead, john what are you gonna say no but it's it's just a testament to like how much control Mm. bogdanovich has over the different elements of the film in terms of him able him him being able to harness those techniques but for very different purposes um but sorry go ahead definitely I do. I will say. I think this is one of the top five most beautifully shot movies of all time. Yeah. That, that's I. I like, and I think it's a testament to how how well versed in just film that Bogdanovich is or was, I should say, because like to nail this movie so well and in black and white is is amazing. Yeah. Like to to do a film in black and white in a time where like the you know film is. It was almost already exclusively old. in color. It was like, yeah. 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 It was at, uh, like almost obsolete. It's like when we see like a black and white movie now. Like when I watched Nebraska like seven years ago, <laughs> I was like, what is this? What yeah, is yeah, this yeah. technique? Yeah. Yeah. Um, like when I, cause like when I was a child, like I thought that uh, the world was in black and white. And then when Wizard of Oz came out, <laughs> it was not anymore. Right. So right. like, uh, it, it, it feels so, uh, so retro but at the same time mm. it's it's not retro at all yeah. i think when this movie came out we were only like i don't know 20 years removed from exclusively black and white films yeah mm. yeah yeah i think like the last like one of the last like movies to do black and white and be a, a critical like and commercial hit um was probably the apartment which came out in 1960 like i think for a lot mm. of people that's kind of like you know it was and it was the last it was the last movie that you know won, won best picture that was black and white. So I think like, but just comparing that movie with this movie, it, it is really, it's just nuts at how it's using the same, using the same technique and is being shot the same way, but just, just such different ends. And it is a beautifully mm-hmm. shot movie, but there is also like, there's a rawness to it that mm-hmm. I don't always love in movies from the seventies. Like it's not my favorite decade in terms of like the way that the movies look all the time because sometimes the rawness which is really great i know pat is pat wants to <laughs> now pat's gonna delete his audio and not send it to me um yeah like i respect it but it's not always my favorite to look at but this is be and it's while still having that rawness to it and i, I just don't know how it's done but done it is <laughs> All right, Pat, let's move on. <laughs> I, I don't like to look at 70s movies, okay? Don't bother me. Oh, tremendous. Oh, yeah. the best. Yeah. Tell us about the shot, Pat. Such a good scene. My favorite movie ending of all time. Mm. I, I think it's perfect. I think it, I, like, I love the ending of Paper Moon, and I love the ending of What's Up, Doc, but this, like, scene uh, between... Uh, Timothy and Cloris Leachman, who also passed away uh, last year. Um, oh, so I didn't know that. Rest in peace to Cloris. Yeah, she. I think it was like it was last January, so it's all it's basically been a year. Um, but her performance in this movie is is phenomenal. Uh, yeah, and her character is is so tragic and heartbreaking. But yeah. I also uh, this scene just it fucks me up. I, yeah, I uh, mm. like the whole movie. There are such like heavy punches throughout. Like, you know, when Billy dies, like, that's like a, uh, like a huge moment, but which is sort of like the catalyst to how, uh, Timothy ends up here. 
but um yeah it's just a spectacular frame yeah um yeah for the viewers for the viewers following along uh, on our instagram at home uh yeah this is a shot between uh uh chloris is it Le- Le- leachman leachman yeah yeah um and timothy bottoms and she is she has her her hand on his on his chest um which is emblematic of their relationship which you will become very hip to um once you watch the movie it, it happens very very quickly into the movie but yeah a really beautiful shot and a really beautiful scene slash ending i like this one too mm-hmm. this is this is like a real kind of like slice of life sort of cinema verite documentary kind of thing it's uh it, it's billy and and timothy bottoms just kind of skipping rocks across the uh the tank as they call it while sam the lion gets ready to uh to fish mm-hmm. um and i well we don't have to talk about that one that one kind of sucks um <laughs> the you know paper moon starts with a funeral and then i thought he sort of shot he's he shot both funerals somewhat similarly um yeah and the focal point in this is sybil shepherd's mother of course you know so moved by her grief and you know sort of mourning the loss of her of sam the lion and and of course her relationship with sam the lion and then in um in paper moon uh tatum o'neill is also wearing a similar white dress Mm. sort of uh beautiful in juxtaposition with everyone else dressed in grays or black right um so yeah yeah yeah, both both that both that funeral scene and the previous scene, um, in which Sam the Lion just he has a really beautiful monologue about a, a lot of stuff, but you know the past and sort of living in a bygone era and watching the world around him change is, um, like many scenes in this movie, is just uh, one of the best like scenes in mm. the history of of the form and the medium. Um, it's really beautiful, and you can find that clip on on YouTube as well if you uh, if you are not willing to put in the time to the movie. In which case, shame on you. Um, so, yeah. Awesome. Well, I think that's probably a good a good place yeah. to uh, to wrap it up. I I just want to say I what I was struck by in reading about Bogdanovich's life after he after he passed away last week. I, I'm struck by like I think there's a way in which you could talk about him as a very tragic figure because like you know not long after he had this run, he had a series of commercial and critical flops and kind of like fell out of favor with the world of filmmaking in Hollywood and just I don't know audience his audience in general in a way that I think I guess surprised people given how you know what a Mm. promising start he had I guess um and also had a series of personal losses throughout his life um really from from the get-go um and yeah, and I, I just I've heard a lot of people talk about him in that in that way, but I'm also like struck by the fact that he always kind of managed to come back too. Like he was never like gone for good. Like mm. he, you know, he had a series of critical and commercial flops, but then released the film Mask, which I haven't seen, but apparently is quite good or was a was a success and kind of like promised that he was like back to some degree. And apparently that didn't necessarily pan out. But then after that, he also had like a life in television. And many many people would know him from... Um, Dr. Melfi's psychiatrist. Yes, yeah. And the He's the psychiatrist yeah. of the psychiatrist. Yeah. Um, 
which is obviously a very minor role, you know, compared to what he had been. But still, like he was always managed to sort of he managed to get back. I don't know, get back uh, in front of people um, to some degree. And I don't know. I just I kind of like that aspect of it. And it makes me look at his career with some a little more optimism or slightly more optimistic reading um, than I think you necess- than could have been the case, I guess. Well, and all like, those films that kind of flopped both critically and commercially have have been reclaimed. Yeah, there's that like, too. Like, especially, yeah, you know, and people, mm-hmm. like so many of those movies, you know, they, they do have a lifespan. Yeah. You just have to wait. <laughs> yeah. You just have to wait 30 years. Yeah. Yeah, that is true. Am I missing In anything In 30 else? years, House of Gucci will be a masterpiece. <laughs> that was a bit. That was a bit. That was a bit. <laughs> I still ride for that movie. I don't care what anyone says. Um, but that's a podcast for another day. Um, yeah, am I, am I missing anything in terms of a good place to end with, with all uh, old PB? I mean, you know, he I cared think, about the medium. That. He cared. Yeah. He cared absolutely. about preservation. He cared about talking about film. And it seemed, you know, it, it are, you know, there's not many left. You know, that's why we have to keep Martin Scorsese alive as long as possible. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Yeah, there's there's, there's just not many people caring about like that that are so vocal about preservation as well. You know, yeah, like, totally. you know, maybe so. we can convince Tarantino to not only make just 10 movies like after this next one. Maybe we can convince him. To yeah, keep going. that's kind of fallen on his shoulders, hasn't it? Yeah, I'll sign mm-hmm. that petition. We can get that going. Absolutely. We, we have Google Docs. <laughs> we'll make it happen. Sure. Um, awesome. Well, uh, Matt, where can uh, where can people, where can slash should people find you uh, on, on the internet? Uh, find me on Twitter, uh, Matt underscore Mitchell 48. I've got uh, the link to all my writing clips in my bio on there. And you can see me every once in a while get sad about whatever celebrity has uh, passed on. Mm. Mm. Uh Today, it's uh, Ronnie Spector today from the Mm. Ronettes. Oh, yeah. I see that. And last week, it was Bob Saget. So we are just turning along. Cruising for a bruising. Absolutely. Um, For for Pat, it was uh, Robert Durst, not Fred Durst. It was Robert Durst for Pat last (laughs) week. Really, really was mourning the loss of a legend. Um, your uh, and, oh, your review of um, your most recent review, I, I think, to this day is um, is the new Weekend album uh, for is. for Paste. Um, mm-hmm. So check, I'll I'll include a, a link to that in the show notes. It's a really really killer review for a, a really killer album. Um, well, thank you. So yeah, check that out as well. Um, Pat, you get anything? No, no. But you're excited <laughs> about you. You're excited about the script that you're working on right now. Yeah, it does have a great last line. Okay. Taken from an email, an Excellent. old email that I <laughs> sort of brought back from the dead on Google yesterday. Ah, uh, those are those are the gifts that keep on giving. It was a great goodbye email from one person <laughs> to another, and I said, I'm going to take your last line. So, Thank you, Matt, so much for coming on. We really appreciate uh, you taking the time uh, to, to talk with us. Well, thank you for having me. It was a blast. Thank as you, always. man.